my strategy has always been to be informed by whatever the prevailing methodology is, but don't necessarily think that it's something, if you don't ascribe to it word for word, that you are going to fail. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. What's every entrepreneur's dream? To build a big business, successfully exit, and lead a life of autonomy with choice. Our guest today needs no introduction. Carly Roney is an entrepreneur with a very successful, if somewhat unconventional, exit under her belt, who is doing just that. Carly founded The Knot in 1996. 1996! Think about where the internet was then. It was AOL chat rooms, dial-up modems, and a single photo took five minutes to load. Carly takes us through the roller coaster ride of her entrepreneurial journey. And while you may not think startup lessons from 1996 are relevant today, guess what, folks? They are more relevant than ever. Efficient use of capital has not gone out of style. Knowing your customer has not gone out of style. And if you're the least bit worried about being unconventional in your approach as an entrepreneur, then you want to listen to this conversation with Carly Roney. All right, Carly, I got to start this interview by saying I am so excited to talk about your crazy wild ride journey from the dot-com bust to situations of going public, uh, running a company with your husband, but he was not your only co-founder, so we're going to talk about all of that, uh, and ultimately your exit and what you're up to now. Um, So let's go back, 1995. Why did you think the knot was needed? Oh, I had just planned a wedding, and I can tell you it was an unequivocal nightmare to try to get that project done while working a full-time job in a foreign city without the help of my family and friends. Um, It just—it seemed like— inexplicable how something could be so complicated to do that you had to do on a deadline and spend that much money. And I didn't actually immediately start the company after getting married. I pretty much swore off ever doing anything wedding ever again in my entire life. And then I saw the internet and I thought, now wait a minute. That thing, wedding planning, that could have really been helped by all this ability to communicate and get amazing information quickly. You could open up, you know, choices to everyone, and a light bulb kind of went off. But it really, it actually took some convincing because it was such a nightmare experience planning a wedding. I wanted to have nothing to do with it ever again. So your professional life started with a, a J-O-B. You, you had a job, and so had you ever contemplated being an entrepreneur? It's funny. It was never my dream, although I had always operated pretty independently. I'd always sort of had things going on in my world. I was always kind of freelancing and picking up cool projects. I went to film school, ultimately, which is kind of like a long life of being in startups. But um, it wasn't my obsession in any way. I mean, I don't even think people articulated it in that way at the time. You just figured out how you were going to make money next. And that sort of became the thing for us. Like, you came out of film school, there were no jobs in New York City. Um, And we came up with this idea and thought, 
oh, wait, we should do that. And that was it. We thought of an idea we wanted to do. We didn't think, oh, I want to start a company and be an entrepreneur. It was how do we get this done because we think this would be a great thing and we'll make money for us. And so that was the foundation of starting a company was um, trying to really make a job for ourselves and, and get a project completed. But oddly, I was really well suited to it because um, I don't need a lot of structure and um, kind of like coming up with my own sort of rules and culture and am very self-driven. So it was sort of perfect. Besides, I don't think anyone would hire me. I'd probably have a nightmare to have work for you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely after having your own company now. Now I won't go back in time and ask these things. Let's talk about the founders. So how did the founding team come together? Because there were four of you. So talk about how you, I mean, it's one thing to talk to your husband about this idea. Who were the other two? And how did that dynamic work to ensure that you actually launched the knot? I had an incredible team I launched the knot with. And honestly, if it weren't for all of us, this company would have never been built. Um, the four of us had worked together um, in a kind of little previous incarnation. It was Rob Ficino, Michael Wolfson, David Liu, and I. And we had done—they worked in an ad agency, the two of them, and my husband and I had kind of like a early digital production company. We had worked on some projects together, and— I really hated the kind of work-for-hire grind, like finding your next project. And one of them had this, had an idea that kind of could parlay into this concept of the knot. And But the four of us were this really critical combination because everyone was entirely different. And I actually say that. People want to have a startup, and they've had their best friend, and they're like the exact same person, and that's why they love to be together. And that's actually the opposite person you want as your partner in a company. You need people that complement each other and test each other. And so the four of us, Michael Wolfson was like the rainmaker idea guy, always like coming up with the, the most random, extreme, bold ideas. Uh, Rob Ficino was like the operator, always coming up with the, you know, how we were going to get stuff done and the sort of path to critical, I don't know, he always used words like that. <laughs> the path <laughs> and, to critical Yeah, whatever success. it was, exactly. <laughs> Um, he also understood advertising at the time. David was the only one who understood anything about technology and about running a business because he had actually had a real job running um, a company. And I was the only person who knew anything about um, women, fashion, media, style, um, editorial, photography, anything that had to actually do with the consumer side of things. So the four of us together ultimately made this incredible powerhouse team. And what was great about it is that we all ran in entirely different directions with 100% trust that the other person was handling their direction in the best way possible. Not that we didn't test each other regularly and have incredible, like, blowout, um, you know, dramatic arguments over aspects of the business, as one does, because we are also four incredibly passionate people, which is its own excitement and um, problem. But it really made—we challenged each other very, you know, well, and but we, but we had very, very strong trust. And so the four people, it was like, it was like 10x of what an individual founder could do by themselves because it was really all these four people empowered by total trust of their partnership with other people. We made decisions really quickly um, and could move very fast. And so it was very complimentary, and I, it is a lot of, of what our success was, the unique attributes of these four founders together. 
That's amazing. And I, I often say to founders in terms of like in terms of looking at who are their co-founders or who they're hiring, you know, beyond the skill set, you know, if you're if you're interviewing someone who you're you know, locking horns with, it's probably the person you should hire because they are bringing this different perspective to the table. Um, all right, building a company with your husband. I mean, it's it's sort of, I, I find it humorous given uh, the way it is often perceived in the, the startup and VC world that this is a detriment. Ooh, we got a husband, wife, founding team. Yet you, once again, are another example of, all right, this is, something that is, in my mind, a recipe for success of a company. But, you know, you've lived it and breathed it since 1995. Working with your husband, what was it like? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I mean, (laughs) it is. We always, David and I very clearly state to anyone who asks us, and believe me, it is like a secret, like, fantasy everyone has to create a company with their spouse, except if they've been married a long time, then they don't want to at all. People come to us all the time. I'm thinking of doing this. And we literally look them straight in the eye and say, if you have any other option available to you to survive, do not start a company (laughs) with your spouse. Um, I mean, we really had an amazing time in a wild ride, and we really learned how to work together. But the first couple of years were, were truly like... Uh, treacherous, I think, in some ways, because it's twenty four seven. You're, um, you know, I think for our for our investors, it was the best case scenario because they literally got like five workers out of one between the two of us because we were like brainstorming, brushing our teeth, brainstorming all night, you know, like never having sex, only brainstorming. It was probably the driest period in our life. <laughs> um, because God forbid you like have an argument about something. I'm like, all right, well, um, you're never going to get any. Uh, so you come <laughs> around to my side. Um, but so it's amazing because there's a tremendous amount of trust, and there's no one you can trust more than your your partner in crime in this instance and your partner in life to want to do the right thing to make this company successful. Because it's all either of you have. It's also great because nobody is waiting for you at home. Right or wondering why you're so stressed out or all those things. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine what it would be like to actually be married to an entrepreneur. Like that would be pure torture, um, and not being on myself. That is, um, and so I think you get a lot out of it. But it's so complicated because we're both really opinionated people. We both have different ways of dealing with stress. We both have different ways of managing our staffs and envisioning aspects of the company. So we butt heads a ton. I mean, I ultimately think the company won for it, was better for it, because we really did balance each other out. Um, But I cannot say it was easy in any way. And I think that it took us like five years to really learn how to divide and conquer and clearly know for each other that there were a lot of things the other person was going to do that you did not agree with and you just had to shut your mouth. And then there would you would save yourself for the time you're like, no, I just can't be quiet this time. <laughs> um, and but it was interesting. I mean, people invested in us not knowing. I mean, I don't that's it seems sort of horrible now, but we just never let on because we didn't think it should be an issue. In fact, AOL invested in us without knowing that we were um, married because we have different last names and one of us had lost their wedding ring, so we just didn't replace it because it was convenient. Um, and then we ended up actually acquiring over the course of our history in the company 
um, at least three different husband and wife teams and because we believed in the power of that partnership. Um, and so it was great. David and I divided and conquered, and we it, it all worked out. We lived to tell the tale. But, <laughs> and, the mar- um, and the marriage lived to tell the tale. The marriage lived to tell the tale. And you have lovely children. I have three kids. I mean, I think what was funny about us is people— um, we never wanted people feel that there was a secret society between the two of us. And I think that that's the challenge. We always wanted a very, like, open world, particularly because it could be perceived, whether with it, whether it was with our two other partners or even with our staff or other executives, that it was like the two of us having some sort of secret conversation. We talked about the company a lot, but we made clear to everyone we have very different opinions. So people never felt like we were these, you know, this partners that were impenetrable. People knew very well and honestly more often used the, well, I asked mommy and she said no, so now I'm going to ask daddy. <laughs> that was one of the bigger challenges of it. That's so. hilarious. And well, it sounds to me what I'm hearing is there's a lot of self-awareness of the founding team in general about who you were and how you worked, and then learning how to work together, right? Right. Ver- versus, you know, hey, there's the husband-wife, and, I, you know, I love this part about the conspiracy and going to mommy and daddy. Yeah. Um, all right, let's also go back because, you know, I, I think we have certain views on, okay, entrepreneurs and founding teams, but also how product is built. And we're going to talk a little bit all about lean startup and, you know, the the the, the dogma and the that is delivered up frequently and often um, in the startup community. Uh, but back in, you know, back in the 90s, was there a product roadmap? Like, how did, how did you build the knot back, back then? You know, it's interesting. Like, we definitely transitioned to lean in our company when it became, you know, popular in the late, whatever, 2009, 10. Um, But it didn't exist in the beginning of our company. But in many ways, I think we had the same positive outcome. If you think lean is a way to basically ensure that you are not, you know, waiting to create the perfect product to talk to your customer, that you are, um, you know, having the most, uh, the, the least wasteful production process. Process, that you are making sure people listen. I think that basically in our early days, the fact that we had no money, no time, um, had to impress our customers really quickly and get them to be obsessed with us um, and were personally obsessed with like being successful, it actually created the same kind of environment because – it made us focus on what was essential to do at that moment and get it out to market quickly and then launch things to make it better by listening to our customers because we didn't have very many choices because we didn't have a lot of money, right? I mean, in a weird way, it's just lean by very nature when you are starting at that time. I mean, we had a product roadmap in that. We had a vision of what we wanted to be. The, the site to be. I mean, you have to remember, we started with a media company. So it was a little bit different than building software. We were working on an existing platform because AOL was our founding founding financier, and they wanted us to create something for the AOL platform. We later obviously moved to the web and to apps and all of that. And some of its some of lean methodology, I think, is more relevant in those environments because you couldn't create a partial concept when you were going out to advertisers and selling them on a thing. And you're really creating a new use case for your customers as well. You can't say like, well, get a little taste of this and then decide whether you want to entrust your entire wedding to us. It is a one-year process that you are asking someone to make you their 
100% partner in planning this wedding. So even when we started to have sort of more software-driven or app-driven stuff where it was like your checklist and budgeter and guest list manager, we couldn't constantly be like, oh, let's actually try something new. Like once they'd input all of their data of their guest list, 250 names, it's not like we'd be like, mm, people aren't really using this delete. Like at that moment, you're in the middle of their wedding planning process. We were very respectful of, I think, user expectations and user comfort, I think, um, and and really tried to make changes that were inspired by them um, and were the most sort of um, relevant to them. But I don't think we just thought of it in that way. We literally thought of it as this project needs to get done. These people need this help from us. Just 100%. I mean, we called it at the time just a really intense focus on satisfying the demand, satisfying the needs of these customers who are trying to get this huge project done of planning a wedding. And I think that followed through when we did it with having a baby. You know, that's not as simple as they can use it one day and not use it another. Um, You really need to build trust in those life stages. And so I think it required us to really have a little bit more of a complete view of what we were offering to them so they could kind of see it and say, yes or no, I want to, I want to partner with this brand uh, to go through this really important process. I'm trusting them with this. Um, And I often feel sometimes now that there's this perception that there's like only really one way to get a job done. And so that that I feel a little bit uncomfortable with because I think there are examples of people just being laser focused on their customer and and not being focused on perfection, let's say, um, and making sure that that time to market is one of their driving factors, like just getting out there. And I think that that's sort of the most important aspects of that methodology. And so I think I wish that those were just there, whether or not you were, you know, you had ascribed 100%. But it's certainly as a way to, for people to work together. I think it's valuable for people to have a, a concept of how to get projects done and get them out the door, particularly if you're bringing a lot of different people together, disparate people. Um, we didn't have the benefit of there being any methodology because there was no such thing as the internet. I mean, I don't want to date myself, but it was there was like the internet. And we were like, huh, how do you make things for this? I mean, that's pretty much how it worked at the time. Well, I want to I go back. I want to say, because you've mentioned AOL and, and there being your initial funder. Um, but before we leave sort of this concept of lean, if you were mentoring someone, uh, you know, mentoring a young woman starting a company and, and creating that kind of software product, what would, you, what would be your advice in terms of sort of big picture advice in terms of thinking about lean methodology and some of this other, you know, these rules that we were we are telling startups, this is how, this, you know, this is how your pitch deck is. This is your product roadmap. You know, what's the kind of the, from your experience, what's sort of that big picture mentoring advice? My strategy has always been to be informed by whatever the prevailing methodology is, but don't necessarily think that it's something, if you don't ascribe to it word for word, that you are going to fail. I think you have to work with whatever team you have, whatever customer you have, and make sure that you're kind of custom fitting the way you want to work with your people around that. But it's great to have a starting place. I mean, I'm always like the research adapt type of person, and I think you don't want to be, but you don't want to be intimidated um, by these methodologies because I think they do kind of become 
like a religion that if you can't quite find your way in or the people you are working with don't, that it becomes very hard for people to work together. So I think people should be able to find their space for their product or their customer and their own personal team um, in inside of it. I think so that's what I say. Like learn it and then adapt it for your situation. Color outside the line. Yes, there you go. <laughs> Better said by Kelly. <laughs> no, all of a sudden I was like, color outside the lines. So let's go back. AOL, like, okay, I don't think we need to explain to people who AOL is. Like, At you know, the Verizon. time, right, yeah, it's very <laughs> they, were, they were, you know, AOL, but also, the, I mean, sort of differences in the, in, in the time when you were building the knot and now, and we really have seen the proliferation and the importance of strategic corporate um, investors and the VC arms within these big corporates, but mm. that wasn't necessarily the case back in, back in the 90s. So, Talk about them funding your Series A, which seems in some ways unimaginable today. Well, yes, they had a venture arm. AOL had a venture arm at the time run by Ted Leonsis, and they were basically giving out seed funding. But their main goal was to get people to create content for their platform. They wanted people to spend more time on AOL and more um, and have more sort of a passion for their brand, more reasons to to be on their platform. And it really it wasn't the number one prevailing thing at the time. There actually was like CompuServe, which is even more of a name you don't even hear anymore, was actually the prevailing platform at the time. So it was risky to go with AOL, but they had more They had more money and were more invested in the content side of things. Um, but it was very funny. When we went into this pitch, honestly, we really did not know what we were doing. Like 100% didn't know what we were doing. We had an idea. We built like, you know, this pitch deck that was really ridiculous looking back on it. It was all about, you know, kind of sizzle, but we, I think it showed well um, on some level, like it looked good. <laughs> it looked like we knew what we were doing. Um, and then I remember we had that, this like nice looking deck. And then we had like an Excel spreadsheet that was our, you know, you know, our, our business model, our P&L, our projections for your, this thing. The, the financials. The financials. But it was really just a, you know, this like random made-up list of numbers. I mean, it really was. I mean, it was based on some logic, but logic that the original assumptions were totally made up. And part of it was, you have to remember, we actually were pitching the idea that we were going to have advertising on our platform on AOL. At that moment in time, not a single piece of advertising had been sold on AOL. It didn't exist as a concept. So when you're creating something from nothing, you're basically just modeling it off of whatever you've made up. It's not like we could go out and research from people. How much would you spend a month to be on a platform that you've never really seen or paid any attention to before, reaching customers? We cannot predict the number that you will have. Like there wasn't really any way to model it. You had to make it up and be starting somewhere. And I remember... The best part about this whole pitch process was we walked into this hotel room with our fancy pitch, and partway through the meeting, Ted Leonsis literally looked up and said, wait a second, wait a second, your customers churn 100% every year? And we're like, yeah. He was like, that's the worst business I've ever heard of, literally the worst. And we were like, wait, no. And we stopped. It was total silence in the room, and that was it. We were like, okay, we've completely botched this. Like, we didn't think about it in that way. And fortunately, we turned around and we're like, wait, 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 that's the upside of our business. Wait a second. Remember, if you're selling advertising 
And you want new customers who are each going to spend their average of $30,000 on this wedding every year. You want a new customer every year, silly. And I remember the moment where we went from being the world's worst business idea ever to funded in literally 120 seconds. As soon as he realized, no, no, new customers, same ads. (laughs) Same ads. You'll have clients forever because they all want to influence this customer. And they're spending that much money in this short, wait a minute, what have I not been getting? And so you just never, ever know. Like, now we look at it and be like, that made such sense as a pitch. How come we didn't start with that? But you just don't know how the person's going to hear what you're saying. You don't exactly know how to, you know, tell your story in those first days. You just have to listen very carefully to what they're saying and respond very well and quickly. And I think that that's what we were always good at as founders was listening very carefully to what people were saying and what they weren't getting about your story, not just telling our story our way. We were very um, – and then also because you're selling advertising, you just have to kind of know what's in the mind of the person who is listening to you. But, I mean, it was like whiplash. We went from, okay, we're going to have to go get jobs to – oh, my gosh, they're giving us, you know, $1.7 million in six months. We have to go. We have to start getting going now. Um, So amazing. But we learned a lot. And it's okay not to know, you know, almost anything when you start out. Or at least we're an example of how complete and total naivete and stupidity works for you. (laughs) How did you pitch as four founders? Everyone had their part. You know, I pitched, you know, how that it was going to be a brand play and that, in you know, the mindset of the customer and how our brand was going to be sort of different and attract them to be using us regularly. Rob pitched the idea of online advertising as a business model, uh, you know, and the financials. We just all picked what our best areas of either passion points or expertise were um, and – that always worked for us. Once again, since we had different areas of interest um, and different areas of expertise, people always kind of clearly understood who was where, and we were able to um, tag team very easily. Thank you for being so honest about the projections and the numbers being crap, because as an investor, we know that looking at pitch decks that the numbers are crap. So what's your advice on that, you know, like in terms of, as you said, there was logic behind it, and I always sort of say to people, to uh, founders, we're looking at the logic and the, the thought process, but what's your advice on on, on people pitching and, and the numbers? We were always told that by our investors, that they always knew it was all wrong anyway. They just didn't know which part of it was wrong, you know? And I was like, well, since it's all wrong, all of it's wrong. I think that we also... We always just wanted to make sure that people knew we put the right thought into it. But that we were never going to be able to guarantee, and that's we, once we understood that. You want to explain your logic. What we've, un- what I understand, and what I tell investors, and when I tell like young companies, people are investing in you and an opportunity, and that that you will be able to figure out the best pathway between the opportunity you see if you're smart enough and hardworking enough, and at least um, straightforward enough, and they think that you have the intelligence and personality and perseverance above all else to get through a, um, a process to find your right way to that opportunity, that that's really more than anything else what you're trying to express in a pitch. Because everyone knows you don't actually know the path from day one. Well, we think, you know, in some ways, thank God we don't know the path from right. day one because you can create something better. But um, let's also talk about the amount of money uh, that you took you know, from from AOL, because that's something that is very different than today in terms of 
the first of all, you know, the amount of it costs to build a company, you know, things now that startups don't literally don't have to pay for that you needed to pay for, mm. but also the amount of money, you know, that they're that they're getting. So talk about, you know, because sort of Series A and, and 1.6 million from AOL, what were they expecting you to do with that? And how how did you put that money to work? It's funny now. It seems like a lot for a seed round. Like the equivalent that you would need today would be whatever, $300,000 or, you know, even less to get as much done as we got done. But, yeah, I have a hard time when I remind people, like, we had to actually buy servers, buy bandwidth, buy uh, software licenses to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So a majority of that money was just gone from trying to get the baseline company uh, getting started. Never mind, I remember we, nobody had their own computers. Like, you couldn't do, like, BYOD. You had to buy the $6,000 Apple desktop machine for your one graphic designer that you had. Um, so a lot of the money was was taken purely from the infrastructure of of getting your company going. Um, And we, however, because once that was the case and there was so little left, we learned this really, really early rigor with spending. And um, we always felt like we had not a dime to spare and that it created this in real um, creativity, I think, on the part of all four um, co-founders and resourcefulness because we knew we needed to make big splashes with very little money. Remember, this was in many ways a brand play in the early days. We needed to get the foundation going of what we were, get a company started, but we needed to get out there and make a lot of, um, be visible in a big way. So whether it was um, trying to create events that, you know, drew attention to our brand or, and this is actually why we started coming up with these like creative marketing ideas of, of getting a book deal. Like we didn't get a book deal because we really felt like we needed to have, you know, books that was a part of our original mission. It was because like, how do you get on the Today Show? You get on the Today Show because you have a book and you get a, you know, you get a book. Well, that's the benefit is you're also on the bookstore shelves where do brides look for information on bookstore shelves. Wait, that's a good marketing idea. It's a lot of work, by the way, but boy, it builds your credibility as well. I mean, a lot of it was sort of iterative to think about how to be ubiquitous, how to be every single place that a bride would look, and then to use some of the money to create some sizzle and uh, appeal because their real customer in terms of spending money was actually the advertisers. So a lot of that was just putting a nice glossy package on what we were doing or having um, having creative events that advertisers could attend and go out there. But that's really all that money got us. Once the, you know, million dollars is gone building your infrastructure um, to actually, you know, pay your staff. And believe me, people made absolutely nothing in those early days, particularly us founders. Um, It was mostly, you know, getting on planes, traveling around, meeting with clients, um, creating a little bit of sizzle and just turning a ton of content out the door. When did the founding team finally take a salary? Um, I think we got a salary starting maybe a year in. I mean, I had, I think that was like, but but our all of our original salary, I remember, was twenty five thousand dollars, <laughs> which I mean, for me, it was David doubling up. Well, heck, it became fifty. <laughs> <laughs> um, Living large in New York City on fifty thousand yeah, dollars. I'm exactly. laughing even in like ninety six, ninety seven. That is like 
that's nothing. No, it was, it was, I mean, and we had already been, you know, living on a shoestring for a long time, but you didn't care. I mean, a lot of it didn't matter. I was in the office all the time anyway. I had nothing to spend money on. Um, that is the beauty of those early days was, was, you know, some of it was just creating a culture where people wanted to be in a company that was doing something fresh and new and people didn't care that much. They, they believed in the, the dream of, um, all being there together, investing in everything we had. Um, and so people really did us a lot of favors and took a lot of low salaries. And, um, yeah, people did really right by us in those early years trying to help us be successful with the bootstrapping world we were in. you got to have a lot of friends. So. You got, oh, yeah, got to have, got to have, got to be a good person that your friends want to do that um, for you. Um now this is interesting too, in terms of the differences in in eras and times. Now we you know, have big companies, Uber, take all those lists of companies, and everyone's wondering: Are they going to go public? Are they going to stay private? What are they going to do? What's the exit? You went public twice. Like, explain that to me. Um, well, it's a, it, it sounds sexy, and it's not really <laughs> it's not really true. It's a very complicated story. But okay, we went public. Nineteen ninety nine. It was the era when companies who were still losing a ton of money. It was a great way to raise money. Um, we did. We were taken public by Credit Suisse. We went out. We raised thirty five million dollars. It was that you know exciting time of all of that happening in late nineteen ninety nine. Um, the door, like, slammed and hit us in the ass on the way out um, because, as, as everyone remembers who was alive then, that spring, basically the stock market particularly, the internet bubble burst and um, companies started failing and the entire category pretty much just started to plummet. So we had the best of times once again and the worst of times. Um, and that was a very, very difficult period. Our stock went from, you know, our company went from worth being, you know, we were $10 a share. We went out. We went up to $20 a share. And then over the course of the next two years, we went down to $0.26. Cents. Um, and uh, to the point where we were ultimately delisted. And you get delisted as a public company when your stock cr- trades below a dollar for a certain period of time. And once you're delisted, you're on the pink sheets. None of your institutional investors really, they like automatically eject you from their portfolios. It becomes, you know, you're literally in the Siberia of the stock market. Um, and this is all despite the fact that we were a company who was absolutely concentrating our business. We were growing our market share. Our expenses were getting reduced. Our revenues were getting up. Every indication in the company was 100% positive. But the the psychological um, influence of how people felt about uh, dot-com companies just had 100% influence on our stock Uh, price. And it was really exhausting. It was one of the darkest periods in our company. Uh, You had to spend all of your energy talking your staff through this, never mind talking all your customers through this. Our competitors in the market were faxing our stock chart to our clients who are like, say, you know, Macy's was a big advertiser. They would fax our stock chart to Macy's and be like, really? You sure you want to give your money to this company? Look, they're going out of business. We were not going out of business. Our stock was just um, suffering um, on the market. And it was just one of the most challenging times in our company, I have to say. Um, and But what you do in that instance is, you know, my 
poor husband, David Liu, you have to hit the road and you have to start getting retail investors to be interested in you, meaning the guys who wanted to buy you on E-Trade. So you're going to like investor clubs out in like hotel airports in Cincinnati trying to talk to people about your company. This is the dark underbelly of, of being a public company and just went around and for it's happened for basically for two years until we were really able to elevate enough interest, to get enough trading going on with the company, to get it backlisted. So that was the second thing. That's sort of like going public again, but not. We basically got back on the New York Stock Exchange by doing that. And what a lot of people do is they do a you know reverse stock split and like pull multiple shares together to make the to make a higher stock price. We didn't want to do that. We believed in the fundamentals of our business and we just had to persevere and push through. We ultimately went back. We got back up $5. I mean, if you look at our stock chart, it is the most insane thing you've ever seen because then later, you know, a couple of years later, we were worth $30 a share. <laughs> All of it is pure insanity. Um, but we had a, several rounds of investing on the market. And then ultimately, I think what is seen as us going public again is that we actually transferred from, the, from NASDAQ over to the New York Stock Exchange because we were sort of rebranding our company as being more encompassing of multiple life stages. So that's when we went from being the not or KNOT ticker, we went to New York Stock Exchange and we became XO Group and XOXO as our ticker. And that was in some ways trying to um, shed our, our past of our what we had been seen as in just this sort of small company and really to um, market the opportunity that it was to be covering these multiple life stages, not just the wedding market. It also was more visible on a global scale. We were doing our China expansion at the time. And also because uh, New York Stock Exchange was very aggressive wanting us to move over. <laughs> I which, mean, says so, which says something about the fundamentals of the company. Right. Right. And, and, and believing it, I'm going to say uh, all those retail investors who bought at 26 cents must have been very happy. Oh, my God. So happy. My father, my, my father-in-law's best friend being one of them, he made like so much money off of our company. But that's what it is. I swear, Kelly, this is a story of perseverance. Everybody needs to think of being an entrepreneur as really just testing your perseverance at all times. That is that is the number one message, the bumper sticker, I think, of our company is just pushing through. Incredible. There are going to be roller coaster rides, and you just have to use your heart and your focus on your company just to keep going. Keep your staff focused on doing the right thing for your customers, the only way to find your way through these periods. And if you're not prepared to stay in hotels and airports— <laughs> In oh my cities gosh. you otherwise would want to visit. Some, yeah. You gotta do everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gotta really do everything. Um, so over the course of I mean, your management team, your leadership skills were, you know, tested and pushed from from every moment with starting um the knot and everything that you've been for, through. Did your leadership style change besides I would say maturing and growing with experience, but did it change at all over the course? Oh, I think it must have been such a challenge to work for me in the early years. I was like totally take no prisoners. You know, I would, to me, you know, the end result was the only thing that mattered. And I think I definitely learned over time. I would say like having kids was the best thing. I was like, oh, that's what patience is. 
<laughs> I was so impatient. I swear to God, people will hear this and be like, yeah, you were a nightmare. Um, but the one thing I always had as a kind of a fundamental, actually really, we always cared about our staff, like deeply on a personal level to really care that they were having a great working experience. And so my my style, I think, has always been at the forefront was like being inspirational. I really have put so much passion into what I do. And I think that that is infectious. And if you have the right people around you who can be in that with you and also to just be really open to letting other people play a huge role, as big a role as they wanted to play, I always let people play. Because then you, you know, if you have enough sort of humility and you can give other people the space and you're creating a safe environment for them to do bold things, they get bitten by their own entrepreneurial bug. And that was my favorite part of this was always being able to sort of take charge and have that sense of almost impunity in a way. And I wanted to create that for people around me because I thought that that would make a really successful environment. And so I think it changed in my patience for people's ease in doing that. I didn't understand early on that people weren't automatically like me and that you actually, they needed more time to understand that they could take risks and make mistakes and that was okay and that they were not going to get in trouble for it. Um, so I think the how I communicated it and how I encouraged people to follow that path um, changed a lot. Um, and I also learned just I had to communicate a lot more. I really believe that people could read my mind. And I always tell people, like, people do not think like you. They cannot read your mind. You have to over-communicate, even though for you it seems like a total waste of time. That self-awareness is just so, so, so huge. Um, I want to go back to the product itself again for a moment because I think this is the other important thing. You originally, knowing that visual, that weddings are such visual creatures mm. and that's part of what the, the sale is, originally you couldn't build the product that you wanted to build. Well, the internet at the time could take like um, like – 20 pixel by 20 pixel pictures. I mean, remember, the, there was no bandwidth, right? So um, it was interesting. But, you know, uh, necessity makes you think very differently. And so I knew that that planning a wedding was about a couple things, right? Like magazines were all about looking through pictures and all of that. So that was one side. But I'm like, okay, well, we can't do that. What's the other thing? Oh, it's about communicating. Like people are obsessed with talking with each other about their weddings and kind of just fishing around within the constraints of what was available um, on the platform available at the time, we were really led to focus on community, on really fostering. I didn't really understand community at the time. I wasn't a super early adopter of the early, early internet message boards. I didn't really get it. But when I thought about my customer and I thought about like two women meeting each other, you know, on the street who both found out they were getting married and how much they, that, that there was so much value in the and intensity in their communication, we realized like, oh, right, that's what we're doing. We're connecting people. We're making a social network around the world of weddings. And that's what we can really use this platform. And so I fell in it almost by a mistake. Once again, I didn't have the vision to understand it from the very beginning. But once I put two and two together and had the constraint to do it, and that really powered so much of our early growth was that social networking aspect of it. And only later, when there was the internet and there was higher bandwidth, and I almost honestly even missed that 
side of it. Um, I actually acquired a company that had created the world's largest online database of wedding gowns, right? And that became the other thing that powered our tremendous growth and and page views. And I mean, it really just goes to show that that even when you think you've researched your audience, sometimes you will miss major aspects of what it is that is interesting to them. And um, I really like liken it to half the time, like just picking up a bunch of rocks all the time, be like, oh, I got really lucky and maybe had the openness to see it at the time. Um, but I think that constraints are in many ways a powerful thing and can lead you to push your um, expectations or preconceived notions of what people are interested in. And then if you look at it overall, I mean, that is ultimately what we did. We created the first social network around weddings and connected people to share reviews of their vendors and uncover different um, ideas. We connected people, you know, one person in Northern California who was planning a Scottish-Japanese wedding with the random person in New Jersey who was doing the same thing. We were really able to make connections around people. And that connectivity is ultimately what, as we all have, you know, discovered over time, and I know you're a huge proponent of, it's that idea of connecting people that is really the power of all these tools we have in front of us. And it was in good old AOL chat rooms. I'd say to people, go to Wikipedia, look it up, and you'll see what they were and realize how crazy and visionary this was. It was. I mean, it's so much is so much that is uh, old is new again. Let's just put it that way. What goes around and comes around, let's also explore this because you talked about going public in 1999 as a way of getting financing. You didn't talk about going public in 1999 as a way of an exit. <laughs> so were you ever building the knot for an exit? No, we were completely naive. We didn't think of the world in that way. We were building the knot to make the number one destination for people on the planet to plan their weddings. We had no... We had no plan that way. We always were thinking six months, one year ahead of us, um, and were ultimately just— I mean, the four founders altogether were just obsessed with really making something important that stood, you know, that stood the test of time, but more than anything else, helped these people accomplish this incredible um, project that they had. Um, and I, people looked at us, I think, as very naive, like the entrepreneurs around us. And like, what do you mean? We, even when the first person said exit, we were like, I swear to God, I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> I just didn't think about it that way. Um, I didn't necessarily think I'd be building this company for my entire life. Like, we actually had a plan where we were going to be launching brands of a similar size every six months, which, of course, was total and complete naivete once again. It took us 10 years to launch the second brand. Um, so you could just see how off the mark we were um, in so many ways. But I think that it benefited us because we, even when it came to having four founders, it wasn't about the share and ownership in the company for us. When we got our financing, it wasn't about that to us. It was about making all the right choices now to be able to get this company off the ground and going. Um, we, we just weren't in it for the exit. Um, and it only, we only thought about it maybe 12, 15 years in, like, huh, are we going to be doing this forever? How does one think about, you know, um, transitioning? Interesting. And then we would pretty much just stick our nose back in our business and not think about it again for a while. Um, and over time, two of our partners left and moved on to other things because it wasn't the right fit for them anymore in terms of how they wanted to be spending their time. David and I stayed. It was so challenging all the time. It was so interesting. It never occurred to me to 
think of any way out. I just wanted to keep doing it until we could, you know, change the world. And there always seemed to be a new technology coming up. I mean, imagine you've been doing this since AOL, where you have like one inch by one inch pictures, and then people have mobile phones. It's so exciting, the opportunity, all the things we wanted to do. 18 years ago, we're finally becoming possible. Why on earth, you know, would you exit now? Um, and so it always seemed to be exciting to me. And um, but, you, but you and David have now exited? Yeah, for, you know, you step, for the most up. part, yeah, stepped away from the day-to-day. It did occur to me one day. We, we actually did have sort of a 20-year mark in our mind, like that maybe 20 years was enough to give. To the knot, and that, and it also occurred to us that we had, you know, been continually surrounded by these incredibly powerful, smart people who were joining our company all the time, and so as we looked at the next ten years and what the opportunity was there, we just thought there are people who can do this. We don't need to do this anymore. David's currently chairman of the board. He can provide sort of general strategic guidance on the company, you know, from that position. I am the brand ambassador and sort of a strategic advisor to the company, and I can kind of help them have a vision for maybe the next generation of the brand or thinking about that or marketing the company is really the best role I can play. But I didn't need to be in the trenches anymore. And I definitely, you know, things just happened Um, I think by listening to what was, I don't know, I feel like really just by listening to yourself on some level, I didn't plan for it, but suddenly it just seemed like the right time to transition and let people take over the day-to-day. And and I actually didn't have a lot of time with my family in all those years. My daughter was going to college. I don't know. It was just like one of those things, like a light bulb appears ahead of you. And then it takes takes two years to f- make your light bulb uh, get to kind of come to fruition. But we planned— Why two years? Well, you actually have to find people to replace you. In a way, you're like, oh, I'm totally replaceable. And then you actually look at all the things you do as the kind of green berets in a company. And we had to make sure we had to hire all the right people. We had to hire a new CEO. I had to hire a new editor-in-chief. I had to hire a new—I mean, I did the role of three people. So I had to hire all those people, train all those people. It's not like— it's not like— when you actually are even a C-level executive and you can kind of give someone six months' notice and walk out the door. Like, you actually had to rebuild the company around you and make sure they, that the people we brought in had a sense of the direction we were going and provide enough of, you know, wind beneath their wings that they could just use a little Celine Dion. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, knowing that I'm Canadian, I knew you wanted yeah. to pull in the, the Canadian aspect. Exactly. You know, you just want to make sure they're going to be successful. This is my entire net worth. I'm not going to walk away without making sure that everyone has enough, um, you know, uh, room on the runway and foundation from us to get to to get to be successful. Um, and so it takes a while to make that happen. Um, and, and and you and David leave b- big footprints. How do you ensure that these next the new CEO and your new editor in chief can be successful without feeling like oh, but you're not like mom and dad. You know, we picked people who were not going to have a problem with that. I mean, Mike Stieb, our new uh, CEO, has got his very much his own way of running the company, and he's a he's a strong personality with an incredible vision. And you know, people were very uncomfortable for six months, no question. I mean, believe me, I think some people are there are just as many people who are uncomfortable who are relieved, who are like, oh, phew, fresh. <laughs> If I hear her tell that story once again, I mean— 20 years is enough of <laughs> yeah, this woman. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that—I um, mean, I think that you're ultimately—you're true. Like, I, I mean, you're right. Founders 
are a really significant force in coming. I think we almost underestimated because that was sort of our way. We underestimated our our value, but that's why you have a long time to do it. So you can really build around it and, and provide the support. Um, but you're just picking the right people. And it's not easy to do, but it's almost fun because what your number one thing is, and I, you know, and for anyone who gets to the point um, um, to be in the lucky position that I'm in, it's amazing because what you're really doing is you're saying it's your startup now. You're the entrepreneur. You have to go make it the company you want it to be. Don't make it the company I wanted it to be because you were in charge. You're in charge of this department or team or brand in a way. And that has like moments where you're like, no, I changed my mind. Um, But mostly that's the job. The job is to hand off the excitement. And you really want that. Once you have had a taste of what it's like to be – to give birth um, to a company and a brand in that way and a culture, all of that, you want people to have the sense of ownership because there's nothing quite like that feeling. And I think that that was one of the through lines of our culture throughout its history was making everyone feel like this was their company. Um, And we never did it well, like I look back now and I sit on the board of companies, you know, like Rent the Runway, and I look, they're so professional and they've learned everything in business school and they put all their key values on a wall. And I'm like, oh, wow, look, there's such a science to it now. Um, but, and that is really important. And we never did it the right way because we didn't know the right way to do it because we didn't have that history. But um, we were impassioned about communicating it, I think, in our own way. But you do have to say those things out loud. I have, I have so much I could learn, <laughs> and I'd do it if I did it again. But Would you, would you do it again? It's funny. I'm giving myself a good, solid break. Um, I am still super passionate about the company that, you know, that I built and I, I want to give all my, you know, my free time thinking to that. Or I feel like it's my time to give back. And so I love like taking the call from that entrepreneur who's heard about me from so-and-so and just needs, you know, a half an hour of my time to give advice. I, I really enjoy doing that because I feel like it is an amazing moment to pay it forward. Um, but I also am really enjoying focusing on something totally different, um, and that's inspiring, too. I never had a lot of time to pay attention to things outside of my business. I literally just focused on my business and my kids, my business and my kids, and that's all I could think about. Didn't get a manicure except if I was going to be on the Today Show for, you know, 15 years. There was no personal time, um, and so it's nice to be able to, like, put your eyes up and, and do, do that. that well, things. and I want to thank you personally for keeping your head down on the business because you had a successful business. And I think there is some of this, um, I'm going to say, extracurricular activity that a lot of startup founders do that I'm like, yeah, get back get back and focus on your business. Uh, you got some money from, I want to hit, hit some questions that we got yeah. in from listeners. You got some money from uh, Sand Hill Road. I know, we flew all the way across the country, used our precious dollars on airplane rides. (laughs) So, uh, you know, Hummer Hummer Windblad, you know, actually uh, one of the few women VCs, particularly one of the few women VCs at the time, um, how'd you convince them to uh, invest? It's very funny. Um, we, we we had a great run because we had, like, really early seed money that was completely uninvolved. Like, AOL, actually, once they gave us the money, they didn't talk to us again. It was very – it was perfect. It was almost – it was exactly like angel money in a way. And then we knew we needed more money and went out in the venture capital round. And um, it was interesting. 
we had heard about Anne Winblad, and we were like, oh, wow, finally there'll be, like, a woman will understand. Because every pitch meeting you go into with a women's-focused, consumer-facing media company around weddings, like, are you kidding me? They all, their eyes completely glazed over. And it was only, like, the young associates who weren't even sitting at the table who were able to actually provide the um, verification of the the pitch in terms of the opportunity we were providing. Um, and so we thought, like, oh, Anne Winblad, that'll be amazing because she's women and actually, it was not even Ann Wimbled who was interested in our company at the time. I mean, I think she supported it, but it was um, Bill Gurley who was, we were one of his first investments. And I think he saw the opportunity in the market size and in the idea that it could be, you know, his original concept of a, of a marketplace. That there was so much money that could be unearthed through this technology. Um, but so ultimately, like, I think Ann was... Like, curious, but, you know, consumer companies weren't really their thing. They were just stepping their toes in there. They did see the opportunity. But she became, ultimately, an incredibly powerful advisor to us. And not because we were a women's-focused company, but because her way of looking at the world. She was a straight shooter, and she came and told us. And my favorite quote, actually, from any from anyone, from my entire history— was Anne Winblad saying, like, define your market and declare a victory. I don't care how big it is. I don't care what the definition of it is. But define your market and declare a victory. And so – and she did. She became um, she became a, a great advocate of ours. Okay. So I want to go to our pay-it-forward questions. Got it. So the, we, I ask all of our guests these. So I'm going to hold you to fast answers. Yep. Um, we'll uh, we'll save the editorial for a blog post if it's needed, hmm. but otherwise, fast answers on these. So, what sort? What are your go-to sources of information? It's quick and dirty. I go through Twitter and click on any links that are interesting to me. Like that's it. Twitter's a, Twitter's a favorite. Um, how do you discover new information? It's interesting. Always through Instagram. Wow, I like that answer. I like that a lot. What book are you reading? Amy Poehler's Say Yeah, like Yes, Please, because I think that um, comedians are the boldest risk takers there are, and I want to know what's going on in their minds. Is it Kindle or hardcover, softcover? It's on all of the above. <laughs> okay, got it. Got it, got it, got it. Um, is there a technology conversation that we're not seeing and having that you think we should be having? Oh, I'm afraid I'm a little bit of a Luddite on this one. Or not a Luddite, but I'm scared that we're not having a conversation right now. Never mind a technology conversation. Like, I'm definitely in that mode right now where I want to see people's faces and talk to them face-to-face. And I feel fearful for the fact that our eyes aren't up. So I hate to be that person in the room, but I'm so avid in technology. But I'm just like, right now, put your eyes up. Yeah, more, more technology to get us out of our technology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, who are the people who most influenced your career? Uh, my business partners. Um, the three founders of my company became, are probably my greatest. Uh, I learned the most from and my best inspiration. Best advice you ever received? And Winblad's advice to define your market and declare victory. <laughs> what makes your work fun and rewarding for you? Oh, the people I work with. I love, love, love working on teams. All right. When you go into your wardrobe and you need something that's going to make you feel, you know, bold and brave and badass, what is it? A killer pair of high heels. There's no question I can't do anything big and bold without a pair of heels on. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And you alluded to this at the end. How are you paying it forward for women? 
I love to talk to young entrepreneurs and make them put their anxieties aside and not be afraid to be bold. I think that that is the best I can do is to give people confidence to take the risk. There's no going back to not take the risk anymore, you know, after the fact. Um, So go for it. Thank you. Thank you for being a successful founder. And thank you for sharing your story. Thank you. This concludes season one of Broadmic. Thank you so much for sending us your comments and for sharing Broadmic with your friends over the past few months. We read everything you send us, and we've been really grateful for everyone's enthusiasm. Words cannot convey what it means to us to have you as part of this community. We'll be taking a short break while we produce season two. During the break, you can listen to the bonus cuts from Broadmic's season one guest interviews. Subscribe to Broadmic on iTunes so you don't miss an episode of our upcoming Season 2. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broadmic and grow the Broadmic community. Broadmic is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think broad.